0: Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity on this Lord's Day to celebrate the greatest news that the world has ever heard, that the tomb is empty and that Jesus Christ is alive. God, what a joy it is after the year that we've had to be able to gather, albeit at limited capacity and with masks and social distancing, but to be able to gather indoors for this service, to hear one another's uh, words and uh, singing during worship, to sit and listen to the preaching of your word, to bear witness to a baptism in our midst this morning, and of course to receive the Lord's supper together as a church family. Lord, it is a joy to be in your house today. God, we ask now that as we consider this amazing passage in Luke 24 that you would minister to our hearts and that you would continue transforming each of us who are in Christ transform us into his image more fully and father we would pray for any who have joined us today that have never put their faith in Jesus Christ God we pray you do a miracle in their hearts today we pray that you would save even now among us and we ask all of these things now In your name and for your glory amen amen good morning you may be seated what a joy to be together today as a church we've been journeying together through the book of psalms but it's easter today and so i thought that we should jump to the new testament and choose a text there but that's a little bit of a tall order it's kind of challenging to just pick a random text Uh, on a Sunday morning to preach from, because I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of amazing stuff in here. There's a lot of different places that you could go to. As a preacher, you feel a bit like the mosquito in a nudist colony. Where do I begin? (laughs) Now, it doesn't really matter where I began, because all of you know where I ended. I ended in Luke chapter 24, and that's our text today. And what an amazing text it is, that unpacks for us some of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the grave. It's been said that a person can live for several weeks without food, several days without water, several minutes without oxygen, but not a single second without hope. Hope is powerful. Hope is essential to life without hope, It's hard for a person to even feel like they should carry on. We just celebrated. Well, that's not quite the right word. We we just marked the one-year anniversary together of the beginning of the COVID lockdowns. And for lots of people, this past year has felt pretty hopeless. Life has been very challenging. I want you to know this morning, family, on the authority of God's word, that God sees you. God knows you. He knows where you're at, and God wants to minister to you this morning through the Scriptures. Now here in Luke chapter 24, we're presented with two travelers who, listen, have had their hopes completely dashed. The episode in Luke 24 begins in a familiar way. Two guys are walking down the street. Have you heard that one before? No, two guys are walking down the street. Two travelers are headed out of the holy city of Jerusalem and they're headed about seven miles away to another town that is called Emmaus. We're told when this episode took place, it says so right up front in verse 13, it says, that very day. What day? What day are we talking about? Well, the answer is Resurrection Sunday. We know that because you could go back and look at verses 1 through 12, which detail the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so on that very day resurrection sunday these travelers who we learn are disciples of jesus are leaving the holy city and going to emmaus so in other words christ is risen at this point but these two don't know that yet they're not certain about the resurrection yet and so as they're going to this other town emmaus we learn from the text that they're having a conversation they're talking with each other we see that in verse 15. But notice in verse 16, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Pretty weird, huh? These disciples who had spent three years presumably with Jesus now cannot recognize him. But the text tells us why. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why is this? Perhaps God was using these two disciples to set the paradigm of how Jesus would be grasped from this day forward by faith and not by sight. There's going to be more on that in a moment. But I think what's going on here, again, is that the paradigm is being set here, that it's no longer about sight. Jesus, from now on, will be grasped by faith. In verse 17, Jesus, this third person who's traveling now, says to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Now we get the first description of how these two disciples are feeling on the road to Emmaus. They're sad. And so Jesus asked them a question. He said to them, what was going on? What are you guys talking about? And their response is this, they say, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This is their way of saying, what, do you you live under a rock or something? Like what's going on? How, How could you not know what just happened in the holy city of Jerusalem? Remember the crucifixion of Jesus happened during a high holy feast in Jerusalem scholars say there would have been tens of thousands if not uh, hundreds of thousands of additional worshipers in Jerusalem for that feast and the crescendo of the events there were that actually a crucifixion took place and Jesus was marched through the city and the crowds were calling out for his crucifixion and he was nailed to the cross and evidently this was news that nobody could miss This sort of took over the conversation in Jerusalem for that weekend, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, how in the world do you not know what happened there? How could you have missed it? Well, Jesus continues to play it off in verse 19. He wants to draw this out of them a little bit, and he says to them, what things? What are you talking about? Fill me in if you don't mind. And here's what they say, starting in verse 19. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And now in verse 21, family, we're going to get to the source of their sadness. Here's what they say, but we had hoped. Notice this, this is past tense. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel yes and besides all this it is now the third day since these things happened I said now we get to the source of their sadness it's not that it's not just that a young man named Jesus was gruesomely tortured and crucified as sad as that would have been to witness it's not even just that their good friend Jesus was crucified in their presence, which would have been saddening to say the least. It's more than that. The problem is that their hope now is dead because the one that they had hoped in is dead. Now we get a sense of the gravity of their sadness. This isn't sadness because you went over on your data limit on your cell phone. This isn't sadness because mom cooked lasagna, which you hate, instead of cheeseburgers, which you love. No, this can rightly be called despair. What's going on is these people have lost hope. They were hoping in Jesus to be something significant for them, and it turns out because he died that in their minds he wasn't. This was the shattering of generations and generations of hopes and expectations that God, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel still loved his people and that God was going to stand up for his people and deliver them from their oppressors, right? They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's a loaded expression there. It tips us off to the fact that what these disciples were looking to Jesus to be was a political deliverer, a political savior. Much like Moses, who had been raised up by the Lord to be a deliverer or a liberator of Israel from their bondage in slavery in Egypt, now they're looking to the Christ, the Messiah to deliver them and liberate them from pagan domination so that Israel would be free to serve God in peace and holiness. They were looking to Jesus to overthrow their Roman overlords. And we see this same expectation all over the Gospels. Some of you will remember James and his brother John, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. That sounds like a WWE name to me. Like, watch out, the Sons of Thunder are showing up. But these two were quite rambunctious, and they came to Jesus one time, remember, and they said to him, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? What they were asking was essentially this, can we be second and third in command when you take the throne? Like, sure, you could be king, maybe I'll be prime minister, and then he could be the third guy. Right, they're thinking kingdom now. They're thinking Jesus gets on a throne now, kicks the Romans out, and reestablishes the glory of David and Solomon's kingdom. Israel's gonna thrive again. Israel is gonna prosper. We see this expectation all over the Gospels. Remember after Jesus fed the 5,000, right? He feeds them with a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and the crowds are so wowed by this miracle worker That they actually want to take him and make him king right there. This is John 6.15 we read. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I say all of this to say to you that this was what the chosen one was supposed to do. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do according to conventional Jewish wisdom. You're going to come, you're going to be our king, and you're going to overthrow our oppressors and liberate Israel and give us freedom again. The word Messiah or Christ in the Greek literally means the anointed one or the chosen one. This is God's chosen anointed savior and deliverer. So there's a lot of hope and expectation bound up in the ministry of this Christ. Recently, I watched a 30 for 30, which are short films that ESPN does, and it was called Believeland, Believeland. And it's a short film based on the city of Cleveland and how they had gone decades and decades and decades without a championship in any of the major sports. Um, I think their last championship was in the 40s or maybe the 50s, And then for decades, every time a Cleveland sports team would get close to winning, some catastrophic, unexplainable thing would happen, and they would lose the game, and Clevelanders felt cursed. But all of that changed in 2016 when LeBron James won a championship for the Cavaliers. If you rewind, though, in LeBron's story, what's interesting is when he was just a junior in high school, Sports Illustrated put LeBron on the cover of their magazine and it had this title in bold font on the front of a junior in high school. It said, the chosen one. The chosen one. In fact, LeBron ended up getting that tattooed on his back later on. When LeBron was drafted by Cleveland, he was seen as the chosen one who was going to finally end the decades-long drought of winning a championship in Cleveland sports. And so, When in 2010, LeBron James decided to bail and go play basketball for Miami without bringing a championship to Cleveland, Cleveland fans were distraught. You can look up video footage of grown men crying, literally bawling. You could watch video footage of fans burning LeBron James uniforms and jerseys in the city streets. The reason for that is because this was just one more painful reminder that Cleveland was cursed by the sports gods. Now back to our two disciples in Luke 24. Multiply that heartbreak by 10. Multiply it by 50. What they are dealing with is not just a city that's been dominated in sports for decades. What they're dealing with is they're God's chosen people And yet they have been dominated by foreign empires and particularly a foreign empire for decades and decades. And their king came and he talked a big game. I'm talking about King Jesus, not King James. He talked a big game. And King Jesus, according to these disciples, did not deliver. And so all of their hopes, all of their expectations... All of their dreams about what God is doing in their lives and for them and for their families came toppling down on that Friday. The moment that Jesus died on the cross, their hope died with him. So these disciples are crushed. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just another failed deliverer. But now we come to the curious turn in the text. Look at verse 22 again. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So check this out, there's this new story that's circulating, that the tomb was empty, that angels said that Jesus was alive, but of course that's unbelievable. These two disciples aren't buying it. They knew what they had seen, they saw Jesus nailed to a cross, and so rather than sticking around in Jerusalem with the rest of these deluded disciples, they decide, no, 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 we're out of here, we're going to get out of Dodge, we're headed to Emmaus, we're fleeing the city, but then the pieces begin to come together. Jesus connects all the dots for them. Look at verse 25. And he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Church, this morning I want to share four brief reflections on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first is this, The, the death and resurrection of Christ were foretold in the Scriptures. The death and resurrection of Christ were foretold in the Scriptures. That's what we see here from Jesus Now, oftentimes, when I've talked to skeptics of Christianity who have asked me why I believe in the resurrection, I point to two answers, and this is one of them. Jesus tells these two disciples on the road to Emmaus that the prophets of the Old Testament had predicted that the Christ, the one that you think should be overthrowing the Romans, actually was going to suffer, that he was going to die, and that he would be raised back. To life. So, Jesus sees this in the Old Testament. And I very briefly want to point us to just one example from the Old Testament of prophecy that points us to the death of Christ, and then one example of prophecy that points us to the resurrection of Christ. And to do that, I want to go to the most obvious and well known passage. It comes from Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant. Isaiah made these prophecies some 700 years before the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I preached on this passage on Good Friday, Isaiah 53. Let me read verses 4 through 7 with you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. A number of years ago, I was with a friend in Huntington Beach and this friend was telling or was talking to another person about Jesus and this other person did not believe in Jesus. And he was talking to him and he said, would you mind if I read you something from the Bible? And the guy said, sure, that's fine. And so he pulled open Isaiah 53 and he read that passage. And he asked this skeptic one question, he said, who do you think that passage of scripture was about? And with no hesitation, the guy said, well, it's about Jesus. And he was able to say, do you know that that passage was written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene? But the way that Isaiah 53 describes the death of Christ is so clear and so obvious that we read it and we go, of course that's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me share... Isaiah 53.10, I'll continue on a couple verses later to point to the resurrection of Christ. Here's what Isaiah goes on to say about this suffering servant. He writes, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now check this out. Isaiah writes this. He says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand this is insane Isaiah just said that this suffering servant was going to be crushed that he was going to be pierced that like a lamb he would be led to the slaughter Isaiah is saying he will be killed and then after he's killed he says that he will see his offspring that he will prolong his days and that the will of the Lord will prosper In his hands, how could that possibly be true of a dead person? Answer Isaiah is pointing us to this radical, amazing truth that God would not let the Christ stay dead, but that God would raise him from the grave. Now, I think a fair question is this why is it that the disciples and the Jews in general totally miss this? If this is clear, like I'm saying, in Isaiah 53, then why did the disciples miss this? How come they didn't understand this in their holy scriptures? The answer is this. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the key that unlocks the entire Bible. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the key that unlocks the entire Bible. It unlocks the Old Testament. Pastor Tim Keller, the well known pastor from New York City, illustrated it this way, and I found it so helpful. Tim Keller said that a good analogy for this is the movie The Sixth Sense. Okay, most of us have probably seen that movie. Now, what happens is when you get to the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense, the interpretive key comes out to you. And all of a sudden, you can no longer watch that film in the same way. You reinterpret everything that happened before it with that key, right? Because the first time that you watch The sixth, sixth Sense, that's a bit of a tongue twister, the first time you watch it, you think Bruce Willis is just a child psychologist and his client that he's working for sees dead people and has these illusions. And so you think that Bruce Willis is there trying to help this young man navigate through a mental problem. Then you get to the end of the movie and here's the climax and if you haven't seen it, sorry, this was like a very old movie. So that's on you. But you get the interpretive key. Bruce Willis is dead. And now in a second, you go, oh my gosh. So that means, and you start replaying the whole movie and then when you actually go back and watch it, you realize, no, the wife was never talking to Bruce Willis. That wasn't what was happening. And you reinterpret the whole movie. You can never watch it the same way. Something similar is what's going on with the resurrection of Jesus. There was a particular way you could have glossed over all of these details in the Old Testament because a resurrection was so unlikely, just like Bruce Willis being dead was so unlikely. But the moment that that key clicks for you, you cannot help but see it in the rest of the story. So number one, The resurrection, the death and resurrection, rather, of Jesus Christ were foretold in the scriptures. Number two, the resurrection of Christ proves that death is a bend in the road and not the end of the road. And this, my friends, is the greatest news of all when it comes to Easter. We see this in verse 26 when it says of the Christ that he would suffer these things. He's referring to the crucifixion. these things that they just said about Jesus being crucified in the city. So he says that the Christ would suffer these things. He was going to die. And then though he would enter into his glory, this expression points to Jesus's future beyond his death. Death did not have the final word. That's what is being said in verse 26. Because of COVID-19, Death and human vulnerability have been in the social consciousness more than at any other point in the recent past. And the world has been gripped by anxiety and fear and worry and angst. But family, for those of us who have our faith in Jesus Christ, that does not have to be the way that our lives are being lived. Easter is the great rebuke of all that is scary in the world. Let me ask you a question. What is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? What is the scariest thing that could happen to you? The answer is death. Either your own death or perhaps the death of a loved one. That death creates separation from anything and everything that you have ever loved and that has ever mattered to you. There is nothing more frightening to us than death itself. Woody Allen, in his typical comedic fashion, once said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> same, Woody, same. Right, I think a lot of us can resonate with that. We, we, we can try to avoid the topic. We can try to deny that it's a scary subject, but nobody wants to die, and nobody certainly wants to see somebody else that they love die. But guess what? All of us will have to be there when we die. There's no exceptions to that. Every one of us have to cross through that terrifying threshold. But here is the great news of Easter. Easter looks back to a moment in human history when Jesus Christ disarmed all of the powers of hell and darkness and death, making an eternal mockery out of them. And from that moment on, Jesus stands with death beneath his foot for all time. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55 puts it this way When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For those of us this morning who are in Christ by faith, who are being changed by his grace, we have this as a living hope for us. Just as death led to a glorious resurrection for Jesus, so it will be for every single one of us. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through 22 puts it this way. Paul writes, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also, or has come also the resurrection of the dead." For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the great hope that we have as Christians. For those of you who are not a Christian this morning, why not? I mean, why not? What is the thing that is holding you back from putting your faith and your future and your destiny into the strong and secure hands of the only one who has entered into death and come out on the other side victorious. Well, I don't believe. I just don't believe, you might say. I'm skeptical. Friend, if that's you, that's okay. I used to be there too. That's totally fine. And guess what? These two disciples were skeptical, and they doubted when they also first heard of the resurrection. And you know what? There was another disciple who's quite famous for this, who doubted when he first heard news of the resurrection. His name is Doubting Thomas. The poor guy has probably spent the last 2,000 years in heaven trying to correct every new arrival. Somebody new dies and shows up to heaven and goes, oh my gosh, there's Doubting Thomas. And he's like, it's thoughtful Thomas, thank you very much. All right, I'm the only critical thinker in the whole group. But you'll remember that Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them on Resurrection Sunday. What a bad Sunday to miss church, right? And they tell him, and he says this, he says, yeah, right, he says, unless I see in his hands, okay, he wants evidence, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, he's like, and I don't want to just see it, he says, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, And place my hand into his side. He says, I, listen to how emphatic this is. He says, I will never believe. Well, the next Sunday, when the disciples got together, guess who made it to church? Thomas. And Jesus appears to them again. And this is what's so awesome. Jesus is not mad at Thomas. Jesus doesn't kick down the door and step in with the disciples and say, hey, where's the doubter at? Bring him up here. I've got some things to say to him. Do you know what Jesus says when he enters the room and he knows Thomas is there? He walks in and he says this, peace be with you. And then he turned directly to Thomas and he invited him to touch his hands and his side. Translation, God met Thomas in his skepticism and his doubt. Some of you here this morning might be like Thomas. You're doubtful, but you've showed up. Friend, God isn't mad at you. God's not turned off by your skepticism. God's not bothered by your questions. No, in fact, God is willing to meet you in your doubt. God is willing to meet you in your skepticism and to bring you to a place of faith just as he did for Thomas. Okay, the last two are gonna come quicker. Number three, the risen Christ is known through the ordinary means of grace. Let me read verse 27 again for us and continue on. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And you might want to underline this and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Earlier I said this, I said, maybe God was using these two disciples to set the paradigm of how the risen Jesus would be grasped from this day forward. By faith, and no longer by sight. Remember back when Jesus joined them in verse 15? We read this in verse 16. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But now notice how in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they what? They recognized him. It was through the opening of the scriptures and the breaking of bread that these disciples were able to grasp Jesus Christ. To put it to you differently, it was through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the scriptures, and through communion that the eyes of their hearts were opened in faith to grasp the risen Christ. As Jesus broke bread and gave thanks here in this passage, the most immediate memory they would have had if they were in conversation with the other disciples, and we know that they were, would have been of the Last Supper the night before Jesus was crucified. And in the Last Supper, during the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and wine, and he took those elements and he broke the bread and he blessed it, and he distributed these elements to his his followers, and he said that the the bread was symbolic of his body, and the wine was symbolic of his blood, and the sacrifice that he was going to make, and he told his followers, do this in remembrance of me. And as Jesus does this and opens the scriptures in their presence, the light bulb comes on. It all clicks. Faith is born in their hearts. And it is through these simple ongoing ordinances of the church that the risen Christ has continued making himself known for the past 2,000 years. Sure, there are occasional exceptions. Some people do have an Apostle Paul conversion experience, so to speak. Some extraordinary revelation, but family, more often than not, it is through the ordinary means of grace. It is through the preaching of God's word. It is through baptism and witnessing that. It is through the Lord's Supper that faith is born and that faith is sustained through the risen Christ. Perhaps even today, the risen Christ will make himself known to some among us. You didn't walk in here believing in Jesus. You don't intend to believe in Jesus, but something inside of you is going, why is this resonating with me? Like the two disciples in Luke 24, you ask, why did my heart burn within me while the scriptures were opened to us? It could be that the risen Christ himself is beginning to open your eyes to see him. Okay, fourth and finally, the resurrection of Christ changes lives look at verse 33 and we'll finish the passage and they rose that same hour and returned to jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying the lord has risen indeed and has appeared to simon then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread notice the effect of the resurrection on these disciples They were walking away from the city of Jerusalem and now they do a complete 180 and they head straight back to Jerusalem. A beautiful picture of repentance. At first they were traveling in sadness and confusion and now they're returning in haste and with purpose. At first they were talking in brokenness over the death of Christ and now they are preaching boldly the resurrection of Christ. The resurrected Jesus is transforming their lives. And this is what we find in every instance when a person comes to the risen Christ. He completely changes their life, not instantaneously, but deeply and profoundly and over a lifetime. In John 11, Jesus's friend named Lazarus died. His sisters, Mary and Martha, who were also Jesus's close friends, were grief-stricken And they were actually upset with Jesus because they had requested that Jesus come and heal their brother while he was still on his deathbed. And Jesus didn't get there in time. And so they're so angry because they say, Jesus, if you had come, you would have saved our brother. And Jesus says this to these grieving women. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Church, look at this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Present tense. This isn't I was the resurrection. This is I am the resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And because Jesus lives, Jesus stands ready to change lives now, even as he did for Cleopas and his companion 2,000 years ago. In fact, this is what is pictured through baptism and lived out in the experience of Christians. Listen to Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I wonder if there's anyone here today that's interested in newness of life. You're looking at your life and you're saying, I, I don't like the life that I have. And maybe on the surface, everything's awesome, and that's why it's so distressing to you. You make good money, you have a great family, you have friends, you, you have health, you have a lot of good things going for you, and yet there's something that still distresses you about your life. Maybe you've even been asking yourself this last year, is this all there is? Get up every day, make money, do this routine, and, and is this all that life is? I'll bet there are some among us that are feeling that way. Our culture is addicted to life change. People are constantly trying new diets and exercise programs, seeing therapists or life coaches, switching careers, switching partners, even trying religion in hopes of changing into somebody that they are satisfied with. But family, the problem with every single one of those changes is that they are all superficial. They're not deep enough. They're like trying to slap a, paint, a, coat, a coat of paint on a house whose foundation is crumbling. That's not enough. It's not going to address the core problem. But the Bible teaches us that in Christ, we are changed at the very core. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As Christians, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. Our hearts and our minds are being renewed. Our character is being transformed. Our desires are being purified. To put it differently, we are beginning to experience life and that in abundance like John 10.10 talks about. And the result of all of this is that we begin to live with wisdom and peace and joy and relational harmony and love. To put it differently, we begin to live our lives flourishing in the truest sense of that word. And this new life that begins the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ continues on for all of eternity, where we experience fullness of joy in God's presence. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is alive now and able to raise you to newness of life. Why wouldn't you believe him to do that for you today? Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for the amazing truth of what happened 2,000 years ago on Easter weekend. That on that incredible Friday, the Son of God, who became a man laid down his life on that cross. Nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. It's been well said that it was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. And we look to that moment where the sins of all of those throughout all of eternity who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, those sins were removed. They were paid for by Jesus the Christ the true deliverer of not just the nation of Israel, but of all of God's people through all time. And Lord, we look to that first Sunday, a Sunday where the disciples were scattering and running for their lives out of Jerusalem, lest they too be crucified like their leader. They were afraid. They were depressed and distraught. But Jesus, you met them and you revealed yourself to them. And because you revealed yourself to them physically in the body, they were forever changed. They could no longer, no matter what the cost, deny that Jesus is alive and that he is the true Messiah, the true Savior of the world. And every single one of your disciples spent the rest of their earthly lives traveling all over the Roman world, preaching the gospel, starting churches, enduring great persecution for their faith and ultimately dying a martyr's death. All of it because Jesus, you are alive and you transform their lives for time and eternity. And this morning, no matter what's been going on in our lives, Jesus, we are filled with hope because you have changed our lives and your spirit is present and active in us. And he's the guarantee that we too will share in your resurrection. So Jesus, we worship, we celebrate this today. We love you. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.